This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls. Our guest here today is Judge Frederick Block, a federal district judge from New York, appointed by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in 1994. He's written a memoir titled, Disrobed, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge. Judge Block, you say in your book that most federal judges start off as prosecutors, but your background is very different. Can you tell us about your early career? Well, I literally started by hanging up a shingle in a community about 60 miles east of uh, New York City. Uh, in Suffolk County, which is the most eastern part of Long Island. And uh, I had no idea that from the day I hung up that shingle, I'd wind up in the federal courthouse in New York. What more I can say? You know, of course, it's all in the book naturally. But I think that I offer something different to the bench here because when I came on board, I think almost all of my colleagues were former assistant U.S. attorneys or they were the U.S. attorney. And uh, nobody had the type of experience that I had by reason of the fact that I, you know, made my living out east by comparison to New York City will be considered to be the boondocks, I guess. And, you know, I found that I was the only judge who had actually, actually filed a retainer or a notice of appearance to represent a criminal defendant. I tried every type of case. I had this broad-based experience. Uh, so I felt when I came here, I had something different to offer. And I was surprised that uh, just about all of my colleagues were prosecutors. To this day, I feel that there ought to be better balance on the bench. These are all qualified people. They're obviously, you know, cherished colleagues of mine. But uh, I just question uh, whether the bench is somewhat imbalanced and tips, you know, inappropriately so towards the prosecutorial side. Like a lot of our readers, you yourself were a solo. What lessons did you learn from being a solo that stands you in good stead as a judge? I, I wasn't a total solo practitioner. I started out that way. But when I came to the bench, I had built up my law firm over some 30 years to uh, a junior partner, one associate, and two secretaries, and a file clerk. So, you know, my path to the bench, you know, was so different than uh, the conventional way in which people become judges. And uh, I, 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 uh, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, and I feel I represent, you know, a large part of the judicial population that's not represented on the bench. You got to appear before the Warren Supreme Court when you were just 33. Uh, what was that like? Uh, I had a sense that it was going to be the one and only time I would be there. But, you know, obviously, you know, uh, a special event because when you stand, and at that time it was Chief Justice Earl Warren, and he bellows out your name, Bianchi versus Board of Supervisors, Mr. Block. Uh, and there you are, and you see these nine people in front of you. There were no women in those days, and you hear voices coming out of their microphone, and you don't know where to turn. You don't know where they're coming from, but I thought I did well enough, but when I listened to the tape, which they do of oral arguments two days later, my voice was like two octaves higher, so I had a sense at that time that you know I must have been pretty nervous. Uh, you're kind of numb a little bit, I guess, by and large. It seems to go by so quickly that you don't have time to even think about how nervous you are. Well, it was an interesting and pretty groundbreaking case for the one-man-one-vote yeah. um, ideal. Could you talk a little more about that case? 
But when I came to Suffolk County, Baker v. Carr just had come out the year before. And, you know, Warren, when he, you know, retired, he looked upon that just as much as Brown v. Board of Education is the thing that he was the most proud of. He was a great believer in the concept of equal representation. Curiously, to talk about how things are politically incorrect at times, it was known as one man, one vote. And today it's appropriately called one person, one vote. But so we refer to it still as one man, one vote, because that historically is the name that attached to it. And uh, as I talk in the book, the first complaint I ever prepared was the Bianchi case, and who would have known that the very first complaint I drafted would wind up in the United States Supreme Court. I didn't make a penny out of it. It was just something which happened. It was something which I was happy to have been involved in. I had no idea that it would lead that way. And I think if ever there was an example of having a case that was a uh, telltale case early on in your career, that was it. How it came about, very briefly, is that when I came to Suffolk County, I knew very little about the county. But the county was a traditional county that we, you know, took years ago from, you know, the mother country from the UK, and it was divided into townships. And we had the five eastern towns that had 10% of the population, the five western towns had 90% of the population, and uh, each town had a board of supervisors. Each town had an elected uh, supervisor of the town, and the reason of being the town chief executive, that person automatically served on the county board of supervisors, which governed the county. So uh, the disparity in voting was stark. I had a next-door neighbor who was well-versed in the history of Suffolk County. He educated me about that, and he said, you know, this concept of one man, one vote, why should it not apply to places like Suffolk County? Why should, you know, we have 10% of the population have 50% of the vote? And, uh, you know, I said, you know, this is a perfect factual case to try to see whether or not the principle of one man, one vote, which before then was only applied to the states, would have broad reach to every elective level of government, such as Suffolk County. So that was the concept. And I thought that while I was trying to make a living in handling collection cases and doing a lot of things that were not so glamorous, I would at least have one thing that would stimulate me that would be interesting and that would keep me alive and kicking intellectually as a young lawyer while I was trying to make a living. Well, once you were a judge, talking about one of the first cases you handled as a judge was a habeas corpus case in the Kitty Genovese murder. Right. It was one of the first ones you handled, and it was, had a lot of publicity. What was it like being such a young judge and facing that much publicity? Uh, if I recall correctly, it was really the first so-called high-profile exposure that I had. And, you know, you're somewhat nervous about it. Uh, you logically are concerned about passing the bad smell test, so to speak, as a new judge. You have a sense that people are trying to get the measure of who you are. And so these things are things that cross your mind. When that case came along, it really took center stage because the first thing I said is, what is this case doing here in 19, I guess it was 1995? Kitty Genovese was murdered back in the early 1960s. People know about that. Mosley, his killer, was sentenced to death, but then the State Court of Appeals you know, decided not to enforce the death penalty then. And there he is, making an application 30 years later to get out of jail. And I realized that our habeas statutes, you know, have no statute of limitations, and he was entitled to a hearing because the issue he raised was a significant issue, whether his lawyer at that time had a conflict of interest because he had also represented Kitty Genovese uh, 
uh, in a number of problems that she had. So we had to have a hearing. And uh, I said, this is going to be something which is not going to play well in the press. It was the first time I had a sense of that. And indeed, you know, the feedback was, what are we doing here with this mess, this terrible person now who tries to get out of jail? And the, uh, the Genovese family was there still, and they were horrified by it. So there was a lot of personal pressure. But nonetheless, it was the first time that I felt very strongly that there was a tension between what was popular and uh, having to really apply the rule of law, which I'm constitutionally obliged to do, and we did that. So we had the hearing. Uh, I was able to rule that, you know, there was no conflict that would allow Mosley to come out of jail, that the decision of mine was affirmed, happily so, unanimously by the Circuit Court of Appeals, on the strength of my opinion. Uh, I felt really good about that, and then felt particularly good about the fact that this unlimited situation where people could bring habeas cases without a statute of limitations was changed the next year, and Congress uh, changed the law to, uh, you know, put in a one-year statute of limitations. Uh, that was a significant change in the habeas law, uh, and it was an outgrowth of the Kitty Genovese case. So the first real high-profile case I had turned out to be you know, quite a profound experience at all levels. Well, you didn't stop there. One of your most controversial trials came from the killing of Yonko Rosenbaum during the Crown Hearts riot in Brooklyn in 1991, and you devote many pages to this in your book. Can you explain a little bit uh, how it came before you? Yeah, I will. It's important, I think, for everyone to understand that we don't pick our cases. They just come out of what we call the wheel uh, where your name comes up. It's just a random type of thing. So, you know, when I look back and I realize I had some, quote, high-profile cases, I didn't select them. Uh, you're on the bench long enough. Each judge, I think, gets his or her fair share. I always chide my colleagues when they get a case like this. I say, you know, congratulations, you just got an obituary case. You may be interviewed sometime in the future by the ABA about your case, right? <laughs> and for sure, it's going to be in your obituary. So this was an obituary case uh, that just came out of the wheel, and it was quite a case, obviously, because I think uh, people uh, know about the Crown Heights riots uh, in the uh, 90s. It was uh, something that had national legs to it. It represented a chapter in the history of New York of racial tension that really we did not have before, and it really pitted the Hasidic community against the African-American community. It was just had all those racial overtones to it. And lo and behold, this was a state court trial initially in Brooklyn, and it was an acquittal. Uh, I'm not going to go into why it was an acquittal. Apparently it wasn't tried effectively, and the jury acquitted, and uh, that caused a national uproar. And uh, out of that came the federal prosecution under the, a federal civil rights statute. And uh, that case resulted in a conviction, but it was set aside by the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, because they were not happy with the way my colleague Judge Traeger had selected the jury. So uh, I got the third case, and you know, so I read about that in the book. And uh, it was an incredible experience because the Rosenbaum family still came to court every day. The emotions still were there, you know, uh, several years later from the time of this killing. This is when the third trial happened. It was as if it just happened a week ago. So to preside over a case like that required an awful lot of thought and an awful lot of resolve on my part to be able to handle it appropriately given the nature of the racial tensions and the fact that the press was covering this. Uh, so uh, I don't know what more I can add to it. I can talk on and on about it. Of course, it's all in the book. I guess every question you ask me, I can always retort by saying it's all in the book. But... Uh, that pretty much is the sum and substance of that case. Well, speaking of the book, would you like to read us an excerpt? Well, I thought that what might be interesting to the listener 
would be the reason why I wrote the book. Because when we talk about, for example, the federal Lambert-Nelson trial, people started asking me, we don't understand. Why is it that O.J. Simpson was prosecuted in the state court? He was acquitted. Why is it that he wasn't then prosecuted in the federal court like Lambert Nelson? And I began to realize that, you know, we, the public doesn't know an awful lot about what the federal courts are all about, what our jurisdiction is all about, what type of cases we handle, how you become a federal court judge. They have a sense of the Supreme Court, but below that level, they're pretty much in the dark. And I said to myself, I think the reason is because judges just don't really make a proper effort to educate the public, to have some transparency. And I thought that we have to do more than just what I refer to as uh, the uh, people with judicial lockjaw. So that was the beginning of my thinking about it. And then I would have all sorts of questions asked to me. Uh, do you handle traffic tickets? Do you do matrimonial cases? Do you do misdemeanors? How do you become a judge? What's the difference between the federal court and the state court? Why do we have all these different courts and all these different ways in which judges are appointed? anointed, elected, selected, whatever. And then I said, you know, there's a need for some outreach to the general public to do something about this. And that was really why I got involved with uh, this old age project of mine. And uh, hopefully uh, this will uh, play out. It's written for the general public, and I hope that we get a fair play on it because the whole idea was to educate in a user-friendly way so that people read it will not fall asleep they will not be uh, thinking that you're being preached to or that it's a polemic or it's an academic book. And so this was the cause that I decided to embrace, and that, that was the genesis of the book. I can read a little from the introduction if you like. Uh, um, I would useful. enjoy that. So here's how it starts. Ed Corman, my judicial colleague on the Federal District Court in Brooklyn for the past 17 years, raised his right eyebrow as I told him about the book I was planning to write. All right. If you must really do this, he said, at least don't put me in it. Obviously, I did not listen to him. My occasional contrarian nature made me do it. And as long as I was going to, I thought that I might as well go all out and start the book with his name. Knowing me as well as he does, he probably knew that I would do this. We are the best of friends, and he is a wonderful judge. Judge Corman and I cherish the independence of the judiciary and its judges. And we pride ourselves on not always agreeing with each other. One of the things that we disagree about is to what extent judges should talk publicly about what they do. Judge Corman is of the judicial lockjaw school, advocating a form of self-censorship that curtails judges from speaking about his judicial process and from pursuing extrajudicial activities. And then I go on to make some reference to some commentaries in a book. I'm going to move along since, uh, you know, I don't think the reader wants to hear me talk on and on, the listener wants me to talk on and on. But I'll go on. Most judges, like Judge Corman, believe that judges should only communicate in academic fora through the formal media of written opinions and official rulings from the bench. I do not subscribe to this. And then I talk about sharing the views of others who are of a different mindset. Uh, and then I say that uh, uh, nowhere is this more oh, well, well, let me go back here. I'm sorry. I share the thoughts of such as Robert F. Koppel, who wrote in his excellent article in the Denver University Law Review, From the Cloister to the Street, Judicial Ethics and Public Expression, that 
Because of the importance of law in modern society, the public needs reliable and understandable sources of information concerning a legal system. Without such information, the public cannot accurately scrutinize the legal process and correct its abuses. Unfortunately, many citizens possess simplistic insights into the workings of our legal system. Then I go on to write, nowhere is this more apparent than in the lack of understanding by the public of what the federal trial courts actually do, let alone how someone becomes a judge of such a court. I've got a few more minutes, but I, I want to try to read the rest of this. Leslie Rant is a case in point. Leslie is the brother of my cousin Ray Pollan's girlfriend. Over coffee last September, when Leslie was visiting his sister, I told him that I was writing a non-academic book about my life and work as a federal trial judge. He asked me a few questions which reaffirmed my belief that this was a worthwhile project. Leslie had recently retired from a long and distinguished career as an IBM executive who was now the general manager of a real estate investment firm. However, he did not have a clue as to how one becomes a federal district court judge, and he had no sense of the differences between the state and federal courts. He asked me a bunch of questions which made me realize that even well-educated people are basically in the dark about what we federal trial judges actually do. For example, he wondered whether I handle matrimonial cases, whether I try both civil and criminal cases, when I have to retire, and how I got the job. After I said goodbye to Leslie, I realized how important it would be for me to try my best to write a book that would be read by the general public. While there have been many books written by judges, they have hardly been bestsellers. Their readership has invariably been those involved in the legal profession. Yet judges have unique insights to share with the general public about the law and the practical workings of the courts, in my case, our country's federal laws and trial courts. How, though, can a book do this in a way that will not bore the reader and gather dust on library shelves? And then I will skip some parts here when I talk about your ethical problems. And then I go on to say, so here's how I've tried to educate and entertain the public at the same time. First, I've told my story from childhood to the day that I was tapped by the president for the judgeship. The reader will get to know me and how it was that from hanging up a shingle in a semi-rural community 60 miles from New York City, a small-town practitioner got to be a federal district judge in the Big Apple. Next, I write about how I broke in as a new judge. Tell anecdotes about some of my judicial colleagues, explain how I deal with the juries and lawyers, go about sentencing criminals, deal with death threats, and in general run my court. Finally, I talk about the cases. In chapters titled Death, Racketeering, Guns, Drugs, Discrimination, Race Rights, Terrorism, and Foreign Affairs, I know the law with the major cases that I have handled. The reader will get to know, for example, about the death penalty in the context of the murder trial of Kenneth Supreme McGriff. And the Racketeering Act will come to life as I recount the trial of Peter Gotti and his Gambino family buddies and so on. I do not know of any book written by a federal trial judge for the general public that is at once informative, provocative, and engaging. Hopefully, this is that book. Judge Black, thank you so much for doing this interview with us. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.